stop praying for personal revival. Most Christians spend much of their life praying for revival in their lives and yet never experience it. And most of the time, they are the very reason that they never say it. The prayers for revival in the Bible are for corporate revival, group revival. Psalm 85 and verse 6, Wilt thou not revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee? Second Chronicles 7 and verse 14, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Habakkuk prayed in chapter 3 and verse 2, Revive thy work in the midst of the years. Now Psalm 51 is penned by David. David has gotten into some very terrible sin. Most of you know the story. David, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, it was time to go to war. The spring had come, winter was now past, and it was time for kings to go to battle, but David tarried still at Jerusalem. Oftentimes we do not think that a simple neglect of something is a big deal. We don't think it's a big deal to miss our Bible reading time or our prayer time in the morning. We don't think it's an, a terrible sin to miss church or sit out of a, a, an opportunity to serve in soul winning. We don't think it's a grievous sin to God to maybe miss a tithe or uh, something given to missions. We, we, we think that those things are, are minor sins. But David missed his opportunity to do what God had called him to do and thus stayed home in Jerusalem. And as he was home that evening, he walked upon the rooftop of his house and saw a woman washing across the way. The Bible says he lusted in his heart for her, called for her to come, had out all men from him and committed adultery. Word comes back to David some time later that she is now with child. So David calls her husband Uriah home from the battle. Uriah returns and David tries to get him to go down to his house. In fact, uh, several attempts are made and even gets Uriah drunk so that he'll not know exactly what he's doing. But Uriah being a better man than David said, no, I'll not go down to my house and enjoy the comforts of my home and my wife and my comrades, my fellow people in war are out there in the battle. I won't do it. So now David resorts to deception. He writes a letter, sends it by the hand of Uriah to Joab, and Joab receives instruction from the king to put Uriah at the forefront of the battle and retire from him so that he would be killed. The murder is done. Now David thinks all is well, but God brings Nathan, the prophet. David's sin is exposed. In Psalm 51 is David coming before God 
backslidden, his heart filled with deception and lies and murder and adultery. David pours out his heart to God here in this sinner's prayer, as it is sometimes called. And by the end of Psalm 51, David experiences personal revival. But he never prayed for it. He's praying for cleansing. You see, young people, revival comes personally when we get clean. Sow to yourselves in righteousness. Break up your fallow ground. For it is time to seek the Lord till he come and rain righteousness upon you. That's personal revival. Personal revival is a cleansing. James said, cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Personal revival does not come through praying. It comes through purifying. We can have all the pre-service prayer meetings we want. We could call for an all-night prayer meeting tonight. But there will be no personal revival without purifying. Many are willing to pray for revival, but are we willing to get clean? Until that happens, prayer is useless. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. We can pray all night. We can pray all day. We can have prayer meeting after prayer meeting after prayer meeting for personal revival. It's never going to come until you and I get clean before God. And in Psalm 51, there are five steps in this prayer of David that leads to personal purity, which is ultimately personal revival. We see first an approach with a tender conscience. Think of these words in verse 1, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. In verse 3, he says, I acknowledge my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. There's no attempt now to cover anything up. Oh, that's been David's practice for a number of weeks, a number of months, but there's no attempt now to, to cover up the sin. There's no blaming of somebody else. There's no attempt to gloss over and, and, and act like it, it, it just isn't there. You know, if we're not careful, our conscience can get pretty hard. No doubt over this series of months in David's life, his conscience had become seared. His conscience had become hardened to his sin. You know, dirty hands don't wash themselves. Dirty hands don't wash themselves. 
We've all gotten our hands dirty in some kind of labor or perhaps uh, playing sports or something and our, our hands are dirty and, and, and we probably know we should take a shower, we should wash them, we should get clean, but maybe sometimes we, we, we're so tired we just fall into bed. And, but, but you know, the next morning your hands aren't automatically clean. In fact, sometimes layers of filth and build up on the skin until that skin becomes insensitive. It becomes hardened. And young people, our hearts can be the same way. We think, well, I, I'm in Bible college. I'm around other godly people. I'm in, I'm in classes where they teach the Bible. I'm in chapel every day. I, 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 I'm singing songs about Christ instead of about the world. And somehow I'll just be clean. No, it doesn't happen that way. There must be an approach to God with a tender conscience to recognize the sin in our own life. Today, if you'll hear his voice, harden not your heart. At the beginning of this semester, we need to ask God to give us a tender heart to cut through the, the filth and speak to our heart once again. For some of you, it's been weeks. For some, maybe months. For some, perhaps years. You've allowed the, the dirt, the sin, the filth of your life to continue to build until God cannot get through to your heart to bring about a revival. You know, the honest truth is, God's not overly impressed with us being in chapel. God's not overly impressed that we're going to be in a multitude of services this week. God's not overly impressed with my sermons or your prayers or our worship. In verse 17, David hit it right. He said, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou wilt not despise. I think God looks away from a lot of our so-called worship. He looks away from a lot of our facade of spirituality. He looks away from a lot of the things that we think we're doing right. God is looking for a broken heart. He's looking for a tendered conscience. He's looking for somebody that's sensitive before him. The Lord is nigh unto him that be of a broken heart and save the such as be of a contrite spirit. The first step is an approach with a tender conscience, but then secondly, we see an asking for a thorough cleansing. In verse number two, he says, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. In verse seven, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. In verse 9, hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. This is not just a, a, a selective cleansing. Uh, this is not a, a, a partial purity here. He's saying, I want you to wash me throughly. And not just kind of scrape off some of the outside to, to, to make me feel a little bit better. Lord, I want you to go all the way through, all the way into the very depths of my heart. Not some surface cleaning to satisfy the student handbook. 
Not some surface cleaning to just kind of keep the dean's office off my back or make the preacher happy. He's asking God to go all the way through him. He that covereth his sins shall not prosper. But whoso confesseth and forsaketh it shall have mercy. When's the last time you took God's side in the matter about your sins? The word confession carries the idea of taking God's side in the matter. So oftentimes when we confess sin, we're taking our side. In fact, even while we're listing our sins, perhaps before God, we in our minds are blaming someone else for the predicament we got ourselves into. We're rationalizing our disobedience. We're justifying our, our sin. And that's not what confession is. If we confess our sins, that is, we come over here and take God's side. We take God's position. We take God's perspective about our sin. If we confess our sins, then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The psalmist in Psalm 139 said, Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me. When's the last time we got before God and prayed that prayer? We come with our surface sins. We come with the outer things that everybody else is aware of. We come with the things that we got in trouble for. And we say, God, I need forgiveness or I'm going to get in trouble here. And we want those surface things to be cleansed. But not David. David's not trying to just stay on the throne somehow. He's not trying to just save face somehow. He's coming before God and saying, God, I need you to go all the way through me. Point it all out. There's an approach with a tender conscience. There's an asking for a thorough cleansing. And then we see, thirdly, an admission in transparent confession. In verse 4, he says, Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Oh, David's messed up a lot of other lives in this process. He's made it painful for a lot of other people. There's a whole host of people that are already dead. There are others that are going to die because of David's sin. But David recognizes that first and foremost, I've got to get right with God against thee and thee only have I sinned. You know, we've been taught to kind of tell partial truths. We've been taught to not reveal everything. We, we've been taught to just kind of admit what people want to know. We hold back. And we think we have enough fig leaves to cover the rest. But can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him? Do not I fill the heavens and the earth? Thou set our iniquities before thee. Our secret sins are in the light of thy countenance. 
Oh God, thou knowest my foolishness, my secret sins are not hid from thee. If we have forgotten the name of our God or stretched our hands to a strange God, will not God search this out? For he knoweth the secrets of the heart. There's nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. Therefore, whatsoever you have spoken in darkness shall be heard in the light. That which you have spoken in the ear in closets shall be proclaimed from the housetops. Neither is there any creature that's not manifested in his sight, but all things are open and naked under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Whither shall I go from thy spirit or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend into hell, into heaven thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, even the darkness shall be light about me. The darkness hideth not from thee. The darkness and the light are both alike unto thee. What haven't we been transparent about? Several years ago, we did a drama here at West Coast, and one of the scenes was a shooting. And to do this scene, I needed a gun. I don't own a gun. So I borrowed a gun from one of our policemen. And he was very kind to let me use it and he provided several clips of blanks that he had thoroughly tested. <laughs> and he placed the gun in a box, a compartment that was locked. He supplied the clips and some other information and all very careful and cautious. And so we began using the gun in some of the practices to make sure that we shot the gun at the right time. And we had the drama and everything went well. And after the drama, I was cleaning up and placing all the props into a duffel bag that I had brought to carry them out with. I placed that box, and those clips and all those things into that duffel bag along with other props and cleaned everything up and went back to my office and I carefully took that, that locked box out of my duffel bag and the clips and I, I placed them in a drawer at my desk and I was leaving town. I was having to get on a flight later that day. And so I put those things in the drawer and I, I, I had made sure the gun case was locked. And I left a note for Ms. Schmidt. I said, now, I need you to get this back to the police officer right away. I, I don't want this in my desk. I, I don't want this around. I don't want it to get lost. It's a very valuable thing, obviously, to this policeman. I don't want it to get damaged. And so just, just call him tomorrow, get this out of here. I don't, want, I don't want this. I don't want this to be my responsibility. And so left those instructions and I went home, got rid of the other props into my garage and took that same duffel bag and packed my stuff for my trip. And I flew through, I flew out of Los Angeles, went through security and so on and to my gate and on to my destination, flew 
through one other town, I, I think it was Dallas, and on to South Carolina to hold a revival meeting in the city of Greenville, South Carolina. And held a revival, and at the end of the revival, packed everything back up in my duffel bag and started for home. I got to the Greenville airport and was going through security. Put my duffel bag on the conveyor there and shoved it through along with my backpack. Went through the little, little fun deal there. <laughs> you may go. Yeah. And I'm waiting for my bag, but it didn't come. It didn't come. Got my backpack, but not my duffel bag. But I'm waiting patiently. This happens, as some of you well know. I'm waiting and waiting and waiting. And finally, an officer, not a TSA official, an officer, a police officer, a rather large female police officer, with a crew cut haircut <laughs> is hovering over me. And she said, she pointed to my duffel bag over on a table. She said, is that yours, sir? I said, yes, ma'am. She said, you will come with me. Okay. <laughs> and you know, I've, played this game before, you know, something's in your bag, it showed up on the x-ray, they don't know what it is, and they got to check it out, got to take their little thing and go through and put it under a little glass, and I don't know what happens there, but I've been there, done that, no big deal. But we're walking past the conveyor belt and past all the x-ray equipment, and we're going to a room. And this lady, about 6'4", with guns on both sides of her belt, handcuffs behind her. She walks me into that room and here are five officers sitting behind a table with my duffel bag. They don't look happy. And next to the duffel bag was one of those gun clips And one of those officers picked it up and he said, is this yours? I said, well, not really, but I can explain. He said, don't speak, just answer the question. Is this yours? Well, now I have an ethical dilemma here. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it, it, it isn't mine technically, it belongs to a policeman, but it is in my possession. Yes, in a sense, yes, it is mine. I, I said, yes. He said, you will sign this, admitting that it's yours, and giving us permission to destroy it. The lady's looking at me like, don't talk, just answer the question. Yes, sir. I signed the paper. I signed away one of the policemen's gun clip. 
After it was all done, she said, you can go. I said, would you like an explanation? She said, no, just go. You know what? Some of us have turned in the gun. God says, give me the clip. You see, some of you are willing to go through God's x-ray equipment and get rid of the gun. The stuff that's obvious, but God is looking for the clip hidden in the very back corner of your bag. Maybe we've even overlooked it. Maybe we've even forgotten about it. Maybe our conscience is so dulled that, that we haven't thought about it for a while as really being sin. But David is not hiding any gun clips. David is, is not hiding some false compartments in his heart. David is not slipping something in another pocket as he comes before God. No, there's an admission in a transparent confession which is followed by an acquiescence to total conformity. In verse 10, he says, Now create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. There's a desire here in acquiescing to a total conformity. He's saying, create, renew, cast me not away, take not, restore, uphold. David's not holding anything back now. He realizes that he's that lump of clay that has fallen off the potter's wheel. And he's placing himself back into the hand of the potter and saying, make me again. You see, God can't make us again when there's, still, when there's still dirt in the clay. When there's still contaminant inside the clay, it cannot be formed, it cannot be shaped, it cannot be designed as God would have it be. And you and I will never be what we ought to be for God until we get the contaminant out. Once we get cleansed, once we get clean, now we can say, God, Form me. God, shape me. God, design me. God, begin to mold me into all that you want me to be. Who hath resisted his will? Who art thou that repliest against God? Shall the thing form say to him that formeth it? Why hast thou made me thus? You see, when, when we get the contaminants out, when we get pure before God, now we're willing to say, I delight to do thy will, O God. Now we're willing to say, not my will, but thine be done. Now we're willing to say, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. As long as there's sin, as long as there's a compartment that's still dirty, as long as there's a part of our heart that's not pure, if, if we're just going to do some surface cleansing, we're never going to do the will of God in our life. But when we get all the contaminants out, now we're that pure clay, that moldable clay, that shapeable clay that God can begin to use for his glory. And the final step in David's prayer is an awakening to a trusting confidence. In verse 13, he says, Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. 
Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. David recognizes that now, when his heart is clean, and he's willing to be shaped by God into his will, he realizes now sinners will be converted. Now righteousness will be exalted. Now God can be glorified. You see, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and of silver, but also of wood and of earth. Some to honor, some to dishonor. If a man therefore purge himself, there's that cleansing, that cleaning process. If a man purge himself of these, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use, prepared unto every good work. The mission of West Coast Baptist College is to train laborers for the harvest. Our whole reason for existence, the reason I'm here, the reason you're here, the reason this place exists, the reason we have West Coast Baptist College is to train people to reach this world for Jesus Christ with the gospel before he comes back. But we're never going to do it until we get clean. We're going to struggle with the will of God. We're going to struggle with contentment. We're going to struggle with fulfillment. We're going to struggle with joy. We're going to be looking for all those things in the wrong places until we get clean. So what would revival look like to you? What would have to happen for you to say, we had revival? Most might respond, people got saved. People got baptized. Church attendance was up. The worship services were exciting. People were out soul winning. The giving banquet was a success. What would personal revival look like to you? God's blessing? My school bill paid? I'm happy? I've seen answers to prayer? Somebody got saved? Could we focus this morning on what revival looks like to God? Because I'm afraid we've, we've been satisfied with the revival that looks like revival to us. Personal revival to God is a clean heart. A clean heart. You know, in Psalm 51, I don't know if there was revival in the palace. But it sure looks like there was a revival in a person. Revival hadn't come to the kingdom. But it had sure come to the king. And so I ask you. 
Stop praying for personal revival. Get clean. Get clean. And personal revival will be yours.